Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a bonus episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the TLS podcast. Last week, Hallie Rubenhold won the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction for The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. Here, she speaks to Stig Abel about the book's gestation, reception and, one hopes, legacy. I obviously really wanted to tell the stories of the five women. When I started doing the research into this, when I wrote up my book proposal, I had intended to look at basically the sex trade in the 19th century and to do profiles on five women in the way that I had profiled the lives of women in the 18th century yeah. when I wrote The Come Garden Ladies, which was my first work of nonfiction. And I thought it would be it'd be great to tell it around around these five women. Interestingly, I mean, I knew I was going to be writing a book about 19th century poverty and about women who had no voices and the poor and people who really have been written out of history. However, I was expecting to find universally that all five of them were sex workers, and I found just the opposite. There just was no compelling evidence that three of the five had been involved in the sex trade at all. It's just, but I mean, so many other things came to light that I wasn't expecting to find. You know, stories about childhood, stories about experiences in the workhouse, stories about, um, you know, Annie Chapman, for example, going to the first women's rehabilitation centre for alcoholism. Were you surprised that this wasn't already well worked over turf? Because one of the striking things about this is that, like all great ideas, the first thing you think of is, why is this not happened before. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I found it completely shocking. I found it, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I, it was one of these things that I, I kept having to kick myself. And How is it possible that we as a society had completely overlooked this whole other side of the Ripper narrative? It made me angry. It made me, I just couldn't believe how fixated we are on this killer. I mean, culturally fixated on this killer. Does that annoy you when you're six? We had, we talked about the opera, didn't we? We talked about the Jack the Ripper opera on this podcast. Oh yeah, we did. And even that was a kind of a retelling. Mm -hmm. But even that had a big stature of Jack the Ripper at the front. So even when it was kind of an attempt not to... It sells. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that weird that it sells? Yeah, of course it is. But But it's, it's also, I mean... It's always been the way. Crime, brutal, the brutal, the grisly sells. Yeah. Which is interesting why, actually, um, Hallie, you made the, the very pointedly made the decision to not give us the final minutes of these women. Yeah, I did. I mean, for a number of reasons. First of all, I think um, 
we can read about that absolutely everywhere else. You know, you open every other Ripper book and that is that is what they focus on. But also the internet as well. And and I deliberately left out um, the mortuary pictures, the pictures of the carved up women who have been sewn back together um, because those images we I think we've seen far too many of those images and and in many ways they've been fetishized and I think it's disgusting and it debases them and we cannot judge a human being or a human life on what their corpse looked like and um, Francis Wilson described this as a, a shaming book and there is there's very clear anger did you know that that would be the case when you set out or did you find yourself sort of being overcome by those feelings yeah it was I didn't I mean when I set out and this is the thing you know non-fiction is always such a gamble and I mean fiction is to a certain degree as well but when you set out you know you have to have a, a very clear map the map you think is going to take you to the place where you think you're going to end up and more often than not that map takes you somewhere near that place but it also takes you on all these little detours as well and so you know I I wasn't expecting to be I wasn't expecting to find what I did find and I wasn't expecting to be so angry and I think a lot of what I have been angry about is the ripper industry, ripperology, and those are two different things. I mean, there are some overlaps between those two. And how big a thing are they? I mean, I, 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 it's not an area I know very much about other than looking into to this book. Is there a whole establishment yeah, that, that you're is. working and why are they and what's their reaction to the book oh god they hate it <laughs> i mean they i mean there are some very very vocal and vitriolic critics who i mean um a group of them recorded a two-hour podcast where they compared me to david irving the holocaust denier and said that i was a complete liar that Why? what's I, in it for them what's yeah and the what word? is it that they're saying that you lied about well they said that i suppressed evidence i redacted evidence never mind the fact that everything's footnoted that i left out really important parts well i say very clearly in my introduction what i did leave out and that is unsus- unsubstantiated witness statements such as um, somebody came forward and said they saw Annie Chapman from behind down a dark street lit by gaslight and this person didn't know her and therefore this has become part of Annie Chapman's narrative. Well, no, it's not. We have absolutely no reason to believe that this woman was Annie Chapman. So why would that be included in a biography? But what do they want the narrative to be? They want the narrative to be... um, well, they want the narrative to be whatever suits their particular suspect theory, because a lot of them are very, very invested in their own suspect theories, because ultimately they want to solve the murder mystery. And is that the ripperology thing? Yes, that's ripperology. But you don't engage with suspect theories. You don't you don't go into all of that. You ignore him. Yeah, I, I deliberately, deliberately ignore that. So why do they care? So if the idea that these are five women who... The thing I love about the book is the sort of the tragic arc of it, that these women are just marked by fate they never really had an opportunity they nearly get out and they don't and they happen to be on the street when they when he comes walking past so there's a kind of the malign randomness of the universe in, well, all, in more, all of this they're more every women than yeah has been the case so but, far but does that blow holes in particular theories then if it's if it is that kind of it's just five women who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and suffering 
you know, a bad hand in life. Does that damage a, a case for it being some... Well, yeah, because, I mean, the interesting thing is there's... God, ripperology is one of these things. They are obsessed with the concept of facts, okay? So, because they are all armchair CID. And they, they're trying to find facts of the case so they can solve the murder. And what I'm doing is I'm disputing what facts are. So I'm undermining the entire pursuit. But you are giving facts. I mean, the thing that strikes me, this is a hard thing to research because effectively you've taken lives of poor people in that period weren't often recorded in very great detail, women particularly. So you've gone into parish records and workhouse records and you've gone back a couple of generations. So you've plotted the course of a happy family somewhere in the provinces leads 50 years later to a woman alone on the streets of Whitechapel. And that is a whole series of twists and turns, but basically bad luck. Yes, yeah. Generationally bad luck, being born into the wrong, into into poor circumstances. But, I mean, it is luck, but it's also, you know, it's society. Indeed. It's society, you know, we can't, we cannot ignore that. And, I mean, the two things that I felt came out over and over again in these women's lives, you know, it's opportunity, but it's education and it's birth control. So for so many of these women, I mean, not and we are, if we're talking genera- generationally, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of Catherine Eddowes' family. And, you know, Catherine Eddowes was one of 12. And then her sisters went on and had enormous families. Yeah. And Catherine had lots of children, a number of whom died. But this idea that you just can't ever get out from the burden of childbearing and looking after those children. And then that takes you out of education. And then you can't ever improve your life. And then the opportunities aren't there for you anyway. So, you know, the cards are stacked. Yeah, and is that a victim? I mean, I'm struck by, this is a very Victorian book. These are very Victorian conditions you're talking about. One of the things you don't really do, which I think is a strength, that you don't sort of shout about obvious contemporary parallels. There's a female, how we treat female victims, we'll talk about in a minute, but are you trying to, are, would you like us to draw parallels to poverty traps that still exist? Oh, absolutely. And I think, and I... Uh, what I what I try to I mean, with the exception of the um, introduction and conclusion, where where it, it's a tiny bit polemical, I like to, as a historian, present these are the facts, and I can say that because they are drawn from documents and and they're examined very methodically and present them and allow the reader to draw their own parallels to the modern age, and there are many. And not and, and let's the, the the obvious one, which is probably the headline one, which I think the one you refer to most in your introduction and the, and the afterward is this idea that how we consider crimes against women, particularly crimes of of either a sexual nature or, or a, a allegedly a sexual nature, that we there's victim blaming that goes on. Mm. There's those Suffolk crimes where where the victims are sex workers and they are treated in a different way. Yes. So these women turned out not to be sex workers. Yeah. But in some ways, your point's a larger one, which is that we talk about the victims, female victims of crime in a certain way still. So yes. the legacy, this is like the origin story or one of the origin stories of that approach, which yeah. we still live today. Yeah, yeah, uh, very much so. I mean, and it's and it's also also about how the press treats female victims. I mean, it's very interesting looking at the Anastasia Yashenko 
case. Anastasia Yushchenko was a historian, in, a young historian in Russia who was murdered by a man who was her supervisor and she was working with him. He's a well-known historian of the Napoleonic era and how the press is handling that, which is it's all about how he chopped her up, how he killed her, he chopped her up, tried to put her in a river. And it's all about him. And, and then, you know, his statements are all victim blaming her. And then I was searching through the press and there's just nothing about who this woman was. There was nothing that humanizes her. You know, she's just a body in a suitcase. And it's exactly the same thing. And why does that happen? I mean, I've worked in newsrooms. Is that, is that probably not conscious? Do you think? Do you think people are sitting there thinking we're going to occlude the story of this woman? Or is it just because the grisly detail is what they believe people want and there's probably will, evidence of that in terms of what people click on so it's probably it supporting bleeds, it leads yeah and, and, that, and, that, and yeah. the fact that there's someone there alive physically shouting telling you what happened or what didn't happen that there's a presence rather than a, a void i suppose and is it harder to then try and fill that i'm just trying to work out how one how you could even change that but i think maybe maybe well that's a good question maybe we need to start asking these questions how do we change this how do we stop sensationalizing murder and do we have a moral obligation to do this yeah and is it even possible in a world where the lowest common denominator is now measurable so sensation's always been around the victorians kind of invented sensational journalism to a certain extent so this is a period very relevant to what we're talking about if you imagine an online world where a sober, balanced treatment of a case exists and one that picks out the three grisliest details, mm. which one is going to get clicked more? Well, yeah. In that world where that level of discrepancy is actually measurable by amount mm. of interest, will there ever be a moral imperative that overtakes that? And how do you introduce that, that moral imperative? That's, you know, that's a very good question. And maybe it's books, maybe it's talking about... Was, it's conscious raising. So if we are willing to start considering these things, if we are willing to start thinking in the round that there is a whole picture here. And I mean, it's very interesting if you think, for example, um, a murderer will always have the last word. Yes, yes, you'll, you'll put there. Yeah. And the murderer will always be the person who his voice will be heard over the voice of the woman he killed um, because he will be the one who's giving testimony and she will never be there to actually tell her side of the story and perhaps we need to be more aware of that it's a much more active pursuit isn't it because if you're looking to to write a story and you have someone there who i was saying before is just sort of providing you with thing after thing after thing Mm. to layer into your story and you can you're, you're being fed it versus going out finding excavating investigating but isn't that the job of journalists? of course no absolutely but, but at a time when journalists squeeze any you know the time for people to go off and investigate things you know an awful lot of journalists never leave the office now where yeah. i'm not saying there's I mean, look, no, not always, an excuse but an there's always a, there's always a golden mm. age of journalism and maybe it never existed but <laughs> um, but i do think that this book raises that question but maybe books like this will actually at least raise like you said the consciousness and the debate that it's very easy to say so-and-so's wife yes rather than the person but that's also that's also a way in which i was gonna say just the victorians um uh, framed uh, it was a framing device that victorians used when talking about women but also in fact i was just talking about this the other day you know well into the 20th century when we look at biography or we look at stories um um non-fiction stories often 
we talk about what a man did and we talk about so-and-so's wife or um, Mrs. John Smith or whatever, and this woman becomes nameless and yeah. faceless and we don't know what her story is. And often when we go back in history and we, we well, who was Mrs. John Smith? Oh, my God. And, you know, she was here and she did this and, you know, she was involved in that. And it's this, we, there has been this tradition of just burying the women. And maybe that's changing. Not least, you know, I took my daughter to see Six. Have you heard of Six? Yes. It's the musical of the Six Wives of Henry VIII, and they're reincarnated as pop singers, and they all get to sing a song about their experience with Henry VIII, and they debate the extent to which they've been written out of history and why they've been written out of history. And it actually reminded me, I read, I saw it not soon after re- mm. reading this book. Maybe there is a thing, maybe there is a zeitgeist that is moving towards that. Do you feel optimistic? We'll have to end it. I mean, because this is quite a pessimist. This is a very sad book. Yes. Is there a a glimmer of optimism in any of this for you? Well, sad books raise awareness. And what really, really, I mean, certainly makes me feel wonderful is how people have embraced this. I think we can change how history is currently being told because I think what people are waking up to, it's not just women's stories that have gone buried. It's like almost everybody's stories. And I like to think of, you know, the average person in history as a kind of core sample of their time period. Everybody's life tells us something. There is no person who lived through any period whose life isn't reflective of the environment in which they lived and the experiences that they had. But they're hard to get to. I don't think they are. Really? I mean, I I did it. And, And I think it's possible to do it. And it is there. And I think, I mean, I remember just even as a historian, um, as a postgraduate, and in the 90s, even being told, well, you know, the reason why we can't tell the stories of average people and this, they just didn't leave diaries and memoirs and blah, blah, blah. But now we have, you know, digitization has really, really changed the, the playing field in terms of what social historians can do with material, what all historians can do with material, because they're so much more accessible. And things like the old Bailey Sessions papers online, which are that is a phenomenal resource that allows you to go back for like over 300 years into court cases but most importantly that tells you the stories of individual average people's lives all this stuff tells you what was on streets and how people lived their lives and how transactions were entered into and you know what people ate and what people thought and it's so rich and those sources are out there it's that thing, um, it's that line, that Olga Tokarchuk line, you know, there's no such thing as history, there's only people's lives. Yes, exactly. Well, exactly. That's a, that's a lovely place to leave it. Hallie Rubenhall, congratulations again. It's a, it's a great book. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that we won the prize. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.